Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 34 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Wednesday, November 4th, 2015. I am your host this week, Sam Klein. You know me on the DBR forums as Dev11. I am joined this week by my regular colleagues. First off, uh, in Washington, D.C., Donald Wine. Uh, yeah, so I'm still angry about this Miami game, and I'll, I'll tell you why later. Okay. Um, we're looking forward to it. And uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, Jason Evans. Okay, so two things. First of all, what Donald just did is called a tease. He teased that he's going to have something for us later on Miami. That's, that's um, I, too, I, too, will have much to say about Miami later on, but I am not in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm in Chicago, Illinois. I'm, um, I'm here working for my, for my client, Top Golf. Um, everyone in Chicago, go to Top Golf Naperville, and, and it'll be good for my career. So, but I, I, but I, I can still talk about Duke hoops, even though I'm in Chicago. It's too bad that you're not there uh, in two weeks when Duke plays Kentucky. Yeah, it, uh, it's a pity. Um, I wish there was some, you know, really cool, fun sporting event for me to go to, but the Cubs lost, so there's no World Series. And um, I, I guess the hockey season just started, but I'm not going to go see the Chicago Blackhawks play hockey because I'm from Atlanta and we don't care about hockey. We'll move on to topics that I think that the uh, the folks listening are probably more interested in than everybody's travel plans. Um, obviously, this week, Duke suffered perhaps the biggest screw job in the history of ACC football. I'm not necessarily the ACC football historian, but I'm not sure how it could have gotten any worse. Uh, Duke lost to Miami on a last second, uh, should have been called down play. Uh, the ACC admitted so after the game on, on Sunday. Uh, and so before we get everybody else's reactions, we're going to get a quick reaction um, from somebody who is more dispassionate, I think, about it than we are, uh, given that he's a member of the program. He's he's the starting quarterback for Duke. His name is Thomas Sirk. We talked to him yesterday, and we're going to play that interview first. Hey, Thomas, this is Jason Evans. My friends Donald Wine and Sam Klein are also here. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I don't know if you've ever listened to the podcast before, but we're big fans. God, I hope you haven't. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I haven't heard the podcast before, but I thank you guys for having me on. Ah, no problem. All right, um, we're just going to start because I know you're sort of limited on time, um, and, uh, and, and I'll, I'll get it going first. Uh, I'm sure you and the team are looking ahead to the UNC game and not back at the fiasco of a few days ago against Miami. Um, but, you know, everyone in Duke fandom is up in arms about this. Can I ask you, uh, what was it like in the locker room uh, among your teammates after the ending of that game? You know, it was quiet. It was, I mean, it was silent. Not much was to be said about it. Um, you know, Coach Kessel came in. We were all obviously disappointed at that moment in time. Um, we were shocked, I think, more than anything. Shocked more than anything. But, you know, then again, I mean, we came in and, and we listened to what Coach Cuthbert had to say, and then we broke it down as a team. And, and like you said, we moved on from that point in the locker room. That's the last that we wanted to talk about it. Um, Sunday, we came back in. We watched a film on Sunday from the Miami game. And, I mean, because there was a lot more to analyze than just that fourth quarter. We analyzed all four quarters of the game and, and learned from our mistakes and moved on. Uh, you, say, you said Coach Cut came in and talked about it. What did he say to you guys? Yeah, he came in and said that, you know, Exactly. There wasn't. There's not much to be said right now. Um, you know, he, he started stressing the importance of us to move on immediately. And he said that that's what we could control at that moment in time is, is us moving on. And right away, that's what he started stressing our team. And 
And as a team, we knew that's what we had to do is move on from that game. Um, I mean, obviously, we were all disappointed. I mean, it was it was heartbreaking. But, I mean, that's exactly what Coach said. We said we had to move on, and that's what we did. Just a really quick last thing I want to ask about that, and then we're going to, and then we are also going to move on, as you say. But um, have you seen the images of the Miami player um, down with his knee down? Um, how does it make you feel? Do you think an injustice has been done? Yeah, I, I, I'll leave that up. I mean, for, for the ACC to decide. I mean, I saw the image. I think that the image was clear. Um, I mean, it, it showed that his knee was down in that moment. But, I mean, that's not for me to decide or for me to call. Um, you know, I mean, there there are people say there's injustices. I don't, I don't really want to, you know, I don't really want to put myself in a position to comment on that. I mean, they made the call. And like I said, there's nothing we can do about it. But, I mean, you know, just based off the pictures and things that I've seen, it, it did seem like it kneeled down. But that's all I'll say about that. Okay. Hey, putting this behind us now, because you guys have had a, a great season so far and there are great things still to come, I'm sure. Really quick for me, reflect back on where you were as a player prior to the first snap against Tulane, your first official start at Duke, and where you are now. What what are the big differences that you feel like you're seeing in your game? Is is the is the game slowing down for you a little bit? What are the things you've learned from the start of the season to where we are right now today? Yeah, the start of the season, I, I came in. Um, you know, I, I was prepared for the situation that I, I mean being a starting quarterback and I worked so hard to put myself into that position. Um, and you know, as game by game goes along, I continue to, to learn more about the position and learn the ins and outs of the position. And I'm going to continue to learn. I think that, you know, you can never learn enough about it and continue to watch film and analyze myself, but definitely starting to feel more comfortable back there. I think that that all comes in, in your preparation of how you get ready for a game. Right? And when you go out on Saturdays, how, how well you've prepared for, you know the situation that we put ourselves in. I mean, we've 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 practiced two minute drills, and we, we've practiced two point plays when when the game's on the line, and fourth down plays. We've practiced those things. And I think that's things that we've prepared well for. And when I watch film, I watch all those situations, and I try to put myself in those situations watching film. And I think that helps you go out on Saturdays and be more comfortable and play fast. Great. Hey, thanks so much. I'm gonna hand it over to Donald now. He wants to ask you a little bit about the upcoming uh, rest of the season. All right. Thank you. Hey, Thomas, this is Donald here. Um, thank you again for being on. Um, looking forward, we obviously have uh, we have to put last week behind us, and we have a big game this weekend against UNC. Um, what do you guys think you need to do to get uh, the win this week and bring the victory bell back home to Duke for the first time in a couple of years? I think we have to come out with a lot of energy on Saturday. I mean, it started Sunday. It started, you know, when we started preparation for the UNC, and then today we had a great practice. But Saturday, we just have to come out and we have to play football. We have to play play relentless, and we have to play to win the game. And we have to do whatever it takes for us to go and win that game. And I think that's what we're going to do. I think our team's going to come out. We're going to be prepared. Our team's going to be comfortable. We're going to study UNC, and we're going to we're going to prepare well for them this week. And I think when Saturday comes out, we'll be ready for them. We'll know their schemes, and I think our guys will come out and play with tremendous effort and tremendous heart on Saturday. In your preparation, what do you think the key is? to put points on the board. I mean, you've played against a variety of defenses from, uh, you know, traditional defenses to, uh, you know, to a lot of stacks and, and, and other, you know, four, five twos and stuff like that. So what do you think is the key in our offense this weekend? I, I think we have to run our base plays. I think we have to stick to what we do well. I don't think we need to change anything up. And like you said, put points on the board. Every time we get the ball, we have to freaking 
go out there and score points. We really do. And um, every every drive has to mean something to us. And our, I think our defense is going to come out, and I think they're going to play great. I really do. I think they're going to be energized and fired up. And when we get the ball, Saturday, we have to we have to do everything we do. We have to run the ball. We have to pass the ball. I don't think we're going to change up anything we do. We're going to run our base offense, and we have to do it really, really well. Well, you guys have been performing well this season, so, uh, you know, we're, we're really looking forward to it. Uh, hey, I'm going to pass you along to Sam, who's got a couple uh, of last-minute questions for you as well. Sam, take it away. All right. All right. Thanks, Donald. Um, Thomas, hi. Uh, hi. We've, we've seen uh, a little bit of a transformation for you this year. I think that at the beginning of the season, um, you know, most of what we knew about you was as a, was as a running short yardage quarterback and the last couple of weeks, particularly this week against Miami in that fourth quarter, uh, you were you were throwing the ball deep a lot more. You were going over the middle more. Um, would you say you prefer uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna get a if you're gonna make a big play? Would you rather run it up the middle yourself, or would you rather throw it to one of your wide receivers? <laughs> you know, making a preference on that. I mean, I think there's more options when you have a passing play because I have the ability to run the ball if I need to. But yeah, I, mean, yeah. I think that. If I can get the ball in playmakers' hands, and, and that's all we try to do Saturday is to get the ball in playmakers' hands. But I, I, in that situation, I think I'd rather pass the ball just because they're on the route. Um, and then looking back, you know, you, you spent a few years in the program. This is your first time as a starting quarterback. Uh, what's, the, what's the preparation week to week like? How is it different um, now that you now that you know that you're the starter, uh, as opposed to in years past where you've been injured or you've been, you know, the backup to Anthony Boone? Um, how is it? How is sort of your life as the quarterback this year different than in years past at Duke? You know, I think that you just, like you said, you have to have a great film study habits, and that's what puts you in those situations on on Saturday um, to come out and, and play well. And I think that's something I've continued to grow in uh, and grow out and, and learn more and more about the position from watching film and analyzing myself. And, you know, I've, I've learned from great players before me, and I continue to talk to those players, Sean Renfrey and Anthony Boone, have taught me so much about the position and continue to help me. Um, and then one more question. I think that's all we have time for. Um, do you have a uh, a story to share with us, perhaps like a, a funny Coach Cutcliffe story? I know that he is good at at telling stories. Not all of them are necessarily true. Um, but in your in all of your interaction with him, uh, do you have do you have a good story about Coach Cutcliffe? You know, I just I, I have good stories. I think that. Um, you know, Coach Chuck of dancing in practice one day is probably one of the funniest things that we've seen. Um, I don't even remember the song. I think it was the song Hot Boy by Bobby Schmurda came on and the Schmurda dance came out. And I think that Coach Chuck was trying to do that dance one day at practice. But I think that's one of one of the best memories I have. And I think he, he tells a lot of great stories. I don't think there's one I can pinpoint right now off the top of my head, but I, I can think about him dancing that day at practice. <laughs> Um, what was he, is he like a better dancer than the rest of the team? Is he, it, 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 does he, does he move like a 20 year old or does he move like an old man? <laughs> you know, I, I, he dances the way he does. I don't think he has a particular, particular, um, you know, type of dance that he does. I think he just does a little bit of everything. He brings a little bit of old school with the new school. All right. Uh, I think that I think that we'll take that as an answer. Uh, I, and uh, I think we're also out of time. So, Thomas Sirk, thanks for joining us. Um, for Jason and Donald, uh, this is Sam Klein. Uh, we, we appreciate your time today. Uh, go to class. Uh, learn something. All right. Thank you, guys. Have a
thanks again to Thomas Sirk for joining us uh, here on the DBR podcast. Um, Donald, did you have anything to to react to what Sirk had to say? Anything? Any thoughts on on that interview? Yeah, well, you know, we thank him for joining, and he, you know, he gave some uh, really good points about uh, about UNC, about you know, previewing um, what they need to do to respond after such uh, a, a, a terrible outcome, as far as you know, on the scoreboard last weekend. Uh, but one thing I need to do, I need to issue this challenge, and somebody out there in the world needs to accept it. I need video of Coach Cutcliffe doing the Schmoney dance. That is all I want for my, my birthday is on November 30th. That is all I want for my birthday this year is video of Coach Cutcliffe doing the Schmoney dance. If you can get this, anyone out there, <laughs> I will love you for life. It is probably going to be the funniest thing I will ever see, and it will be the perfect gift for my birthday. So challenge to all of you, Schmoney dance video. Go find it. Donald, can you tell us what it is? What the what the schmutty dance is? The yeah. schmutty dance is. It, I'm going to have to post a video, uh, uh, edited video, um, on the forums when we post this podcast episode. Uh, I don't think I can quite explain it uh, or give it give the explanation justice on here. So what I'll do is I will find a, an edited clip and I will post it so that everyone out there can recreate this perfect dance. All right, so we're just gonna have to imagine Coach Cutcliffe doing it on on top of the video. That works. Um, yeah, when you see the video, then then you'll understand. And then, but we won't have to because somebody's gonna give me my birthday present. Someone's giving me this video. I, I'm looking forward to that. All right, uh, Jason, any any thoughts on Duke football? We can we can you can start with the Miami game. You can start with Virginia Tech because we didn't we didn't get a chance to record last week, so we haven't got an opportunity to react to the last two weeks of Duke football, which have been rather emotional. So why don't you just Take the floor and, and tell us how you're feeling. Well, so let me start with Virginia Tech. Um, just really, really quickly, uh, for folks who don't read the DBR forum, there was something I posted there that I want to just bring up on cast, which is on the on the final play, the game-winning play, um, Shaq Powell uh, was such a key player on that play, and I think folks maybe didn't notice it. Go back and watch Cirque's two-point conversion. Shaq Powell um, lays a block down on, uh, 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 on on a Virginia Tech lineman who's way bigger than him, and Powell takes the guy out completely, um, which is which is great, and it's awesome. Um, and that's just Shaq Powell's job on that play was, and it gives Cirque the time to make a dash for the end zone. Um, but Shaq Powell then gets up um, from off the ground, and when with Cirque almost stood up at the goal line and not quite able to get in, Shaq Powell goes up and, and he doesn't push Cirque because that would be illegal, but he sort of blocks the guy who's holding on to Cirque and his momentum is what drives Thomas Cirque into the end zone. Um, I will go to my grave believing that the reason Duke beat Virginia Tech is because Shaq Powell kept on playing until the whistle was blown and the whistle was blown after Duke won the game. If he doesn't get up and help Thomas Cirque, we're still playing overtimes with Virginia Tech. We're probably in overtime number 15 right now, but um, I really credit him with that. Okay, so for me, that's Virginia Tech. Put that down. Put that aside. I want to talk about Miami. The, the question at this point has become, should the ACC give this win to Duke? Um, and there, you know, there are certainly a lot of Duke fans. There are a lot of people talking about whether or not this game should be uh, should be granted to Duke because because we were robbed. There's no other way to say it than other than, other than the fact that we were robbed. I, I want to just bring in 
two interesting comments. I, I have a bunch of friends who've been emailing me about this. We've been having email discussions of it. Um, a friend of mine named Eric Rothschild, who is who's actually an esteemed attorney from Philadelphia, um, sent me an email and he said this, and this is really interesting to think about. He said, while there is some logic to saying that because this was an end of game play, that you know because it was the last play in the game that we could say, oh yes, we're going to give this to Duke. Um, it seems kind of artificial, he said. He said, would the result have been any less catastrophic if the same error had happened and there were still two or three seconds left on the clock? And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. If you're going to say, okay, the officials screwed up and the ACC should reverse the result, do you say that only because there's literally no time left? Because let's say there were two or three seconds left on the clock. Would you then say, oh, well, sorry, Duke, because there's two seconds left, you don't get this game re reversed. I think that would be wrong. And then another friend of mine, a gentleman named Charles Roos, wrote and said, to him, this game is a gift. And it's a gift because it is one football game in exchange for us being able to put to rest for all eternity the statement that Duke gets all the calls. He said it's a bargain. We have traded one football game. Not that we didn't want the win, but we've traded one football game for a lifetime of being able to say, when everyone says Duke gets all the calls, we'll be able to say, uh-uh, what about that Miami game? We don't get all the calls. So I'm going to stop there for a moment. There's more stuff I've got on this, but um, uh, Sam, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit of what, what's your thoughts on uh, the, <laughs> the absolute mess that was uh, the Miami game? Let me start with an apology that it is currently raining in Denver where I'm recording. So if you can hear some like background uh, drizzle, um, that, that is mother nature uh, still being sad about the Duke game. I also want to apologize to my friends who I was supposed to go out with on Saturday night because I didn't make it out. Uh, I was sitting at home with my phone in my hands, just like I was refreshing Twitter. I was texting some friends. I, I, I had like nothing Nothing could, could calm me down on Saturday night. I think I stayed up for another like four or five hours before I went to bed, just, just in total shock. Um, it, it, you're right. I mean, we, <laughs> as, far as, as far as Duke getting all the calls, this is it, man. No one can ever complain about it anymore. And not just that, not just can nobody ever say that again. Um, but when people, when you mention Duke and you talk about football, people say, Duke, they got a football team? And you go, yeah, you remember that, that ridiculous Miami game? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is terrible. I mean, I'd rather be remembered for like coming back and winning the Chick Fil A Bowl or something. But that's another another question that you're probably never going to hear again. So uh, I'm. Ugh. I want to say that the ACC should reverse the call, but I also because there's there's a logic to it, right? If the if the the ACC said if the game if the if the play had been called correctly, the game would be over and Duke would have won. Uh, but at the same time, we're you know we're the biggest Duke fans. We're obviously the most. Uh, we're the most affected by this. We're the most emotional about it. So it's not on us. It, it is neat to see uh, the national sports media being pro-Duke, so pro-Duke. I mean, it feels like every commentator across like ESPN and, and all the networks and blogs and everything has just been like that, that Duke has, has gotten totally screwed here. And uh, that's sort of a weird, different feeling to just be part of the masses. Uh, I, I don't think we normally experience that. Uh, I'm disappointed, obviously. I think that in some ways, maybe it was good for this team because I think that we may have been holding on to a little bit of hope about about potentially making the playoff, and it still would have us would would have required us to win out. We're obviously not going to make the playoff now. There's there's absolutely no chance, as opposed to there just being no chance. Um, 
but we still have the AC. Well, wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. What? I want to. I want to jump in. I want to jump in on that because um, I think there's a really interesting scenario. Not scenario, but there, there's an interesting thought to be to happen here. First of all, you talk about the playoff. Can you imagine if an undefeated Clemson team had a game taken away from them like this? Oh, um, it, it would have been it, it, it would have been twice the outrage that it was for us and or and Alabama I, or or LSU or Florida yeah, State or any of those major programs. Well, well, I think, yeah. I think it's probably most notable to, to refer to Clemson, right? Because it's going to be the same people deciding. I don't know how the SEC works. I don't know what the relationship is. Each of the schools is, you know, with everybody else. Um, but I do know that the ACC has has a massive inferiority complex about football nationally. And if this did happen to Clemson, for, I think that nationally football, a lot of football fans would laugh about it because they'd be like, ah, ha, ha, the ACC and ha, 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 Clemson. Um, the ACC would do their very – they would do whatever was in their power – to figure out how to give Clemson that win because because Clemson looks like they might be the best team in the country this year. And, and it, it doesn't take much for a team from the ACC that looks like the best team in the country to turn into not a team in the top four anymore. And the ACC would love for Clemson to make the ACC championship or to make the, the playoff. And I think every team in the ACC has to admit that, yeah, it would probably be good if Clemson made the playoff for us as a conference. Um, you know, all right. So, so, so really quick, so really quick, the, the other thing I wanted to mention then is, and I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if somehow uh, Duke, with this Miami loss still on our record, um, managed to win out, and by win out, I, I include beating Clemson in the ACC title game. Um, and so Duke at that point would, I believe, be 2 or 11-2. and 11-2, I believe they'd be. Yeah, um, it'd be 11-2. 10-2 after the regular season. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, so Duke would be 11-2 and two at that point. Um, I think that the committee, remember, is not bound by records. They're not bound by polling or anything like that. I think the committee would go, you know what, that Miami game, that didn't really happen. And they they might treat Duke as if we were 12-1. and one. I'm not saying it's going to happen. Um, I'm not saying, you know, we'd even really be in the conversation. We take a lot of stuff happening to be in the conversation. But one of the nice things about the committee is that they can sort of look at this and go, you know what, Duke really is 6-1, and one, not – you know, or seven and one, not six and two. Well, what, you know, whatever. Didn't seem to look, they didn't seem to look too favorably upon UNC this week because they didn't even rank them in the top twenty-five. And I think that that may, unfortunately, speak to what the committee thinks about the Coastal Division because UNC has looked really, really good this year. They have beaten a few pretty good teams. Um, they've done it in in mostly convincing fashion, and, I, and we'll get to them, I think, in a minute. But um, I I don't think the committee is letting any coastal team into the into the playoff, no matter even even if UNC were to to the run the table from this point, I don't think that that they have the resume for it. If at this point they're not even in the top twenty five. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Hey, hey okay, so there's one more thing I want to mention, and and you brought up the fact that that uh, the the national media, you know, ESPN, everybody on ESPN, and and media all across the country is. Um, uh, is talking about this game and saying that it's wrong and that Duke should be given the victory. Um, I, I want to uh, read to you guys uh, a little piece of a column by uh, uh, David Whitley, who's a sports columnist at the Orlando Sentinel. Again, this is a Florida columnist. And I just thought some of the things he said about this were really, really interesting. Uh, he be- he thinks that Miami should, should forfeit the game. And here's what he had to say. Um, he said, through, through the magic of ACC officiating, Miami has been handed a rare gift, and I don't mean the 30-27 to 27 win over Duke on Saturday night. 
The gift is a chance to throw its reputation back in the faces of all those who think that the Hurricanes are a bunch of rule-breaking, fatigue-wearing, party-yacht football rowdies. And sadly, given the opportunity to prove that, Miami has chosen to punt. It will not forfeit a game that everyone lost. The ACC suspended the officiating replay crew, essentially admitting that this is a case of bank robbery. The Hurricanes didn't plan the heist. They're more like bystanders who were tossed a bag of cash by fleeing robbers and are not giving the cash back to the bank. Miami could say Duke truly won, so we will mark this as a loss for us and hope everyone does the same. What do the Hurricanes have to lose? The season already has a toe tag on it. Instead of going down as another year of faded glory, the U would be remembered for uncommon character. I thought that was a really interesting take on all this, that this is a chance for Miami, a team that has as bad a reputation as any school in the NCAA, a chance for Miami to look really honorable. And as he says, they chose to punt. They, I'd say they chose to punt in a pretty aggressive way, uh, given given the T-shirts that they're now selling at the school store about the about the play. Um, Donald, did you did you want to want to pile on to the to the Miami game? Yeah. So let me start off by saying, first, um, uh, as many of you know, I am a Duke undergrad alum, and I am also a graduate of the University of Miami School of Law. So I obviously. Uh, represent both alumni fan bases here. I was at the game in Durham, and as all of you probably know, there was not a stitch of orange or green on me uh, in that stadium. It was all Duke blue. Now, from the angle that I had, I was standing on the side, or I was standing on that side uh, um, facing, basically I was sitting in the section right behind the Um, Miami kickers where they would be practicing their kicks and I had a probably the best angle in the stadium of the knee hitting the ground it was evident in the stadium it was evident by everyone on the Miami sidelines it was evident by anyone who was watching that game in the stadium that the knee hit the ground you could tell by the reaction of everybody on the sidelines, especially the Miami players, and that's who I'm really focusing in on is the Miami players. They knew that his knee hit the ground. They then seemed to react as if to say, well, there's no whistle, so let's just play this out and see what happens. It wasn't until the flag went down for the block in the back that was probably, uh, you can say, the most questionable of the calls that were or were not made that the – quote-unquote, riot started to happen from the players. And that's because they had this look in their face of, if you're going to make a call, you're going to make that one. That's the one that you picked, um, the one that was probably the most questionable. Now, I'm obviously very upset about this because it's something that can be corrected, should be corrected, but won't be corrected. And, you know, as uh, Scott Van Pelt said, he, he had gave a very good monologue uh, just the other night about this game. And he mentioned that instant replay is there to get the call right. And we saw not just with that, with the final play, but if you guys recall with Max McCaffrey's fumble, he was lying flat on the ground with the ball in his hand. And there's also video evidence of that. That was shown in the stadium. That was all over Twitter. And it was, also ruled a fumble, and they, that actually was a play that 
stood on the field as well. So Ter- it was I, I a terrible call. Terrible call. I, I, so the, the point is, why do we have instant replay when the, the call of instant replay, the role of it is to get the play right. And if we know the play is wrong and we have videographic evidence that it's wrong and we can fix it, but choose not to, that's a cop out in my, in my mind. And, and I, I understand why they're not going to overturn it. They're not going to reverse the, the victory uh, or the defeat or what have you. It's because there's no precedent of it. And nobody wants to open that Pandora's box of having a game change from a loss to a win on, on behalf of one team or another. You guys bring up the angle of, you know, the Duke gets all the calls, you know, uh, uh, talk and the chatter that we can silence that. I don't think we can because people will always bring that up in regards to basketball. In the national scheme of things, nobody except for us Duke fans really care about that in the sense of football. And I don't think this game will change that. I think what would have changed it is if they had changed the game and said Duke actually won and we're going to make it a Duke win. That would have opened up a Pandora's box that – Everyone would have piled in on us saying we didn't do the right thing. Um, but I, I, I don't get how, in the end, we are going to be slighted by this no matter what. You know, it, it's, it stings because, uh, for me personally, it's Miami. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a team that, of course, I have a lot of friends that went to Miami. I cheer for Miami when they're not playing Duke. Um, and it's, it's angry to me because there are a lot of people out there who through their, you know, green and orange colored glasses are saying that his knee didn't hit the ground, that there was no call, that they were, that they were slighted by the 23 uh, penalties that were called, uh, that the circ touchdown didn't count or wasn't reviewed or what have you. They're looking at it through their lens. And of course my lens, lenses are Duke blue and I'm seeing, and, and, and it's a wrong that can never be righted. And I think that is what makes me mad the most. It's something that I like, being there and seeing it live and knowing live it happened. And, and I guess, I don't know if this translated on TV. There was a point where the referee came out and said, uh, upon further review, the knee was down. Hang on. We're reviewing it again. And went back to review it a second time. And it was at that point that on the screen, they kept showing the illegal block in the back. They were showing that from multiple angles. They never showed the knee being down that part of the, of the play. It was at that point that everybody in the stadium knew what was about to happen. And to feel that and to see that happen, to see them basically go in and say, I know what you're thinking, but we're going to make this game over anyway, uh, is kind of what stings the most. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll finish by saying uh, one of my Florida State friends um, – basically summed it up like this. And I thought it was a funny way of of summing up what everybody kind of already knew. They basically said, if the, the, the play was so cool and so unbelievable that it actually happened, that we're not going to overturn it because it was that cool. And even though we know it didn't really count, it's still too awesome to overturn. And so we're going to, we're going to let it stand as a touchdown. And that's kind of how it felt. I I got a problem with, I I think that that they're, they're, there's some crazy logic in that. When when Miami returned it all the way and they were going and, and it looked like they were maybe going to bring it back for a block in the back that looked more like a block in the side and frankly was a guy who was not going to catch the Miami guy. Um, right. 
I was a little bit like, really? Uh, that feels kind of, uh, you know? I mean, like, if you were going to call one, there were some egregious, horrible blocks in the back earlier, but if it had been that one, I was sort of like, really? But but one other thing I wanted to bring up really fast, and then we should move on. We, we've dwelled on this long enough. Um, Donald, you were talking about the replay officials and the replay officials getting it wrong, getting the McCaffrey um, fumble wrong. Um, something I learned this past week. Uh, so do you guys know who replay officials are, how they hire replay officials? Craigslist. <laughs> no, not quite. Um, replay officials are regular officials who've gotten, you know, a little old, can't really get it up and down the field quite as much as they used to. And so they sort of gently ease them into retirement by letting them get in the replay booth. Um, that's just wrong. That's wrong. You're either qualified to be an official, you're either good enough to be an official or you're not. And taking a guy who's in his 60s and is wearing glasses and can't see straight anymore and saying he's the guy, he's been a good official for 18 years, so we'll let him have this as his going away present. We'll let him be a replay official for a couple of years. That's not the way to deal with replay officials. Replay officials should be just as competent as the guys in the field. In fact, because replays almost always always tend to be really crucial, really important plays, touchdowns and changes of possession and things like that. Those should be the freaking best officials we can find. It shouldn't be the guys who are on their way into the Shady Acres retirement home. I'm done. I was going to mention with the replay officials, I mean, we all know that, uh, you know, the very next morning they were suspended for two games, the entire crew from the, from the guys on the field to the replay booth in the, in the court and the communicator. Uh, between the two. Um, I think, honestly, that the replay official, whoever was looking at the replay in the booth, should never work another game in college football because and the, the guys on the, on the referees on the field, um, the officials on the field, they get stuff wrong all the time. You know, two-game suspension, you know, that makes sense. Um, but they yeah, the game's moving faster. The game's moving full speed for the them. The game's moving fast. But the reason why we, like I said, the reason why we have replays get it right. And if I was on Twitter in a, in a football stadium, which, as many of you know, is very hard to do when 30,000 people are on their phones trying to check to see were you what, grabbing what that, is happening. Were you grabbing that Duke Wi-Fi? I was, I was grabbing that Duke Wi-Fi hard, man. But I, if I can pull up a picture of the knee being down from two different angles within seconds of it happening, I don't see how the replay official couldn't see it. And that is why, you know – I don't like calling for people to never work a game, but if you can't see that and that was so obvious that it was on Twitter within 30 seconds of it happening, then we, we don't have anything else to discuss. You, you should not be, this is not your line of work, and maybe you should find something else. Preach on, brother. I'm with you. Sam, move us on to something else. All right. Uh, I think we're done with Miami. We're going to put this to bed. We're obviously going to remain bitter about this for the rest of our days, but as I've been telling all of my Duke friends this week, Guys, at least we won the basketball championship this year, right? Right? I mean, like, can we... Yeah, can that we, still happened. Yeah, that, that still, still happened. Think, things, are, things are still okay uh, for, the, for the Duke fan in 2015. Uh, I want to move ahead. Uh, sticking with football real quick, um, let's look ahead at the big game this weekend. Duke and UNC are the only two teams left in the Coastal who control their own destinies. And the game this weekend was going to be big either way. It's, it's still going to be big. It's obviously maybe not 
Um, maybe not quite the uh, the luster that it, that it would have been if both teams were seven and one um, with you know early season losses. But it's it's still going to be a big deal. It's still the the main the main event in the Coastal Division. So I'll start with Jason. Um, tell me about UNC. Uh, what do you what do you see from them? What have you seen from Duke recently? And how do you think this game's going to go? So, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I brought up Carolina um, prematurely uh, because I was talking about how uh, impressive their offense was looking. Um, they had a five game run after they lost to South Carolina to start the season. They had a five game run where they averaged 46 points per game. I mean, that's a big friggin number. 46 points uh, averaged per game is huge. But then you sort of look at who they were playing during those games. They played NCA&T. They played Delaware. They played Wake. They played Georgia Tech. They played Illinois. Wake's the worst team in the ACC. At the time, Georgia Tech was probably the second worst team in the ACC. Um, uh, Wake is basically just a decent, you know, one double A, what do they call it? You know, football bowl subdivision, whatever. They're, they're not even a, a they're not even a, a decent, you know, 1A team. Illinois is pretty mediocre also. Uh, so Carolina put up these big numbers against teams that they, they couldn't really compete with. Well, in the past two weeks, they played Virginia and Pitt, who are not world beaters, um, but are significantly better than what they have been playing. And Carolina only put up 26 points in those two, 26 points per game in each one of those two games. So I had been terrified that this Carolina offensive juggernaut was going to um, make it really hard for Duke to keep up. I mean, our defense is great. Our defense is the best thing we have on the field. But um, I thought Carolina was so impressive that that even our defense is going to have trouble keeping them below 30. And I wasn't sure that our offense could get to 30 against Carolina. Um, I feel a lot better about that after the past couple of weeks. And I think that I think part of why I feel better is because Carolina has come down somewhat. But part of why I feel better is that I feel like the Duke offense is starting to get better and better and better. Carolina, talking about Carolina, you have to talk about their QB, Marquise Williams, who is easily one of the best quarterbacks in the ACC. Um, he is a true, and this is the guy, if Duke if Duke does not win this game, well, or win or lose, I should say, he will make an impact on this game. This guy is a true dual threat quarterback. He has 11 touchdowns passing and five touchdowns running. He's run for more than 500 yards which is more than Thomas Sirk. I mean, we think of Thomas Sirk as a dual-threat quarterback. Marquise Williams is Thomas Sirk even better. Um, he's only been sacked nine times this year, so he's very elusive in the backfield. Um, and I'll tell you what scares me a lot about Carolina. Um, I sort of feel like the place that Duke has struggled a little bit this year defensively is in the, in the secondary um, with teams trying to go deep on us some. Uh, I, you saw Virginia Tech did it pretty effectively. Um, I, I really worry. I feel like we've gotten we've gotten good against the run. I, I'm not as thrilled with our defense against the pass. And Carolina plays an incredibly vertical passing game. Duke has exactly one wide receiver who averages more than 14 yards per catch. That's Ryan Smith, who only has six catches all year. We only have one. Carolina has six guys averaging better than 14 yards per catch. Six, and most of them are the guys who catch most of the footballs. Carolina is getting huge, huge chunks of yards every time they throw the ball. In fact, Mac Hollins, who's like their number two wide receiver, is averaging 24 yards per catch this season. That's terrifying. Carolina goes vertical with the ball. Uh, basically, Marquise Williams, 
he runs, you know, read option kind of stuff. He lures you into getting close to the line and then he beats you long. And that is what you have to worry about. You got to be terrified that Carolina is going to put up 30 plus points. It's going to, if, if they do that, if they are able to get a lot of these guys getting, you know, 15, 20, 25 and 30 yards per catch, Duke's in real, real trouble. Donald, do you got anything on this? Yeah, I was going to mention um, you had talked about the defense um, earlier, and I, I, I think the uh, one thing that I have seen over the last few games is that we are caught in some bad positions sometimes in the secondary when you have those vertical threats, and it's because of the over-pursuit of the run. We've, we've had some really cool schemes for, from a fan perspective where you see guys coming in from all angles to rush the quarterback, uh, but what that does is it leaves a passing angle, a passing lane open um, that teams, the weaker teams, have not been able to exploit. But possibly UNC has probably seen that um, and and and, could, and and has the capability to make plays through those passing lanes. So I think we need to make sure that our defense, when they do those shifts and they do those uh, crazy, uh, you know, with like Jeremy Cash rushing the quarterback or or um, uh, Singleton rushing the quarterback, that we have cover for them and I think they are probably working on that hard this week so I, I think that's one of the keys on defense and on offense uh, I, I go back to what uh, what Thomas Sirk said when we were talking to him yesterday and that they they want to be able to strike first and they want to be able to put the pressure on UNC we're going to UNC it's their home crowd it's going to be a sellout they're going to be jazzed up I believe it's their homecoming um, so I'd love nothing more than to get the the victory bell and and ring-a-ding-dong it on their field during their homecoming. But to do that, they need to keep the pressure on. And, and the way the, the offense has to do that is by putting points on the board. So I, I think those are the two keys, uh, both on defense and on offense. And by the way, th this is it. Th th this game is, for all intents and purposes, this is the Coastal Championship. I mean, Pitt, Pitt is in the race as well. But the winner of this game has a huge, huge, huge leg up for the Coastal. And, and boy, wouldn't it be sweet. Wouldn't it be sweet? The uh, the thing that I'm looking forward to, I, I I I guess I'll address the side of the ball that is more interesting first because when Duke has obviously been one of the most elite defenses in the country this year, and, and UNC, as Jason told us, has been so good on offense, they they can move the ball in a lot of different ways, and they get they get a lot of big plays. Uh, I'll be I'll be Mr. Optimist here. I think this is going to be uh, Jeremy Cash's Heisman reel this week. I think that that Cash and the rest of the defensive secondary is is has been looking forward to this game. I think they know Marquise Williams. They know the UNC offense. They've they've played against them before. And I'm looking forward to seeing the Duke secondary make plays uh, against those UNC wide receivers and against Marquise Williams. Um, I think that that uh, they're going to be extra motivated by the loss against Miami. I think they that the team probably feels like they were robbed. I mean, Thomas Sirk isn't going to admit it to us. Um, but I, I feel good about the about the defense being prepared for UNC. This is this is a big rivalry game, and they've known they've known about this game the whole year. And 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 they remember what UNC did to Duke last year in Wallace Wade Stadium, and just just ran all over the field on Duke. Uh, so I expect a spirited performance on the, from the defense. And then on the offensive side, um, I'm really encouraged by what we saw from Thomas Sirk in the fourth quarter this week. I think that when when put under pressure, I think that he was performing a lot better. Uh, obviously Miami helped by committing a bunch of penalties that I think some people were questioning, but you know what they, they were calling them. And, and when Cirque was, was hitting his guys, he was hitting them in stride 
And in that fourth quarter, the offense for Duke looked really, really strong. I am looking forward to that being a continuing theme for this offense. I think that we might finally be seeing Thomas Sirk coming into his own. He's able to, you know, check different uh, different options before he tucks and runs. He's he's able to see guys down the field. He's throwing balls over the middle uh, in you know in smart ways. So I'm 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 feeling optimistic about this game. I think that I think that there's nothing there's nothing that you could be more motivated by between the result from Miami last week and the result from the UNC game last year. Uh, I, I think that this, this Duke team is going to come out really hot, and as you said, Donald, they're they're going to have to be they're going to have to be hot early to keep up with a with a UNC team that has such a strong offense. So I think it's going to be a fun game. I think that um, you know football fans in general should enjoy this game, which I don't think is something that nationally you might necessarily say about about the Coastal Division. But this week, this game is going to be really good. So, guys, I think it's ready to. It's time to uh, maybe talk about Duke basketball a little bit. I know we've I know we've been on a football kick recently, but uh, but it might be it might be time to uh, talk about Duke basketball. Does that sound Does that sound like a good idea to you guys? Let's do we, it. We are the, I'm ready for basketball. We, we are the Duke Basketball Report podcast. So uh, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to move on from football and and go to Duke basketball. In case anyone was not aware, uh, Duke was playing their second exhibition game of the season tonight. It was against uh, Livingstone. Duke won 119 to 54. And I'm going to start with Donald. Uh, impressions from from the exhibition game tonight heading into the regular season so uh, you know i was able to follow on on twitter i, I was uh working late was not able to access the the blue devil network feed but uh following on twitter and kind of getting the impressions from uh, some of the highlights that i've seen it, it looks like we have a starting lineup for the first i guess for the first few games uh you know and obviously we we i say that with the caveat that uh, Matt Jones did not play tonight um, uh, with his uh, sprained ankle um, or a sprained knee, I believe. Uh, but and he's supposed to be back by the start of the game. Early with an injury, so <laughs> maybe we don't know our starting lineup yet. Right, right. But it, it, I mean, there were definitely some great performances by you know Chase Jeter, uh, Luke Kennard, and, and Brandon Ingram. I thought they uh, uh, it sounded like they were hot all game and really asserted themselves on the offensive front. And, and Jeter on the boards as well with eleven boards. Uh, I, I think that we have not seen the full capability of our team yet, and I think that's good because you know we we still have some pieces that are that will probably be worked into the the main rotation, especially at the beginning. Like you said, Emil Jefferson, he didn't play that much because he uh, he I guess he had picked up a knock on his ankle. Uh, you know, Derek Thornton, we 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 hope will probably be in the lineup a, a lot more, and, and Sean Obi seemed to have played a lot better than he. Uh, we, we've noticed his struggles uh, early on this season, and we've uh, talked about him on previous podcasts. Um, but it sounds like he performed a lot better, uh, despite the stat line not really reflecting that. So I, I think that's uh, encouraging to see. We want all our guys uh, to start building, um, you know, because when the season starts next week, we're, we start off with three games in, in five days, so including one against Kentucky. So I think that's the key. Everybody's improving and getting their legs under them, and it's it's hard to take away a lot from uh, beating you know Livingston one nineteen to fifty four, but uh, I, you're going to take away something. It's that you know looking at the stats, there are a couple things that jumped out to me. Um, I, I love that um, we had different guys taking over at different times. I, I think that's that's going to be a nice hallmark of this Duke team. It's not going to be led by only one or two players on offense. I mean, Allen and Ingram each had 14 points in the first half. Kennard had 14 points in the second half. Um, Luke Kennard, by the way, 
four of six from three in the second half, including hitting, you know, threes in the first couple of possessions of the game of the second half. Um, he is not shy about shooting. <laughs> he took 11 threes in this game. Um, I, you know, I don't know. You know, he hit six of them, which is great. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. Um, I don't know how often Duke's going to want uh, anyone shooting 11 threes in a game. I mean, we do like the long ball, but that may be a little tiny bit much. And um, you got to be impressed with Brandon Ingram's length and his quickness. I mean, he had five steals. Um, he was a big part of Duke forcing 18 first half turnovers. 18 first half turnovers is a lot. But it's so hard to take anything away from these games against teams that are so horribly overmatched. Um, it's not their fault. Look, I mean, this is a this is a, a you know a much, much smaller school, not a division one program. Um, it's great for them to get the experience of playing against Duke and playing in Cameron, but you know, you're not even facing guys that were really recruited by Division One teams when you're when you're playing these games. Um, I'll tell you the one stat that that has me a little bit concerned. Livingstone got 17 offensive rebounds. That's a lot of offensive rebounds. Um, Duke only had 19 offensive rebounds. Now, part of that is Livingstone couldn't shoot straight. I mean, they only shot 28% of the game, so there were a lot of balls for them to grab. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of clangs, a lot of misses, and and uh, they only hit 20% of their three-pointers, um, six out of 30 on three-pointers. And three-pointers tend to be long rebounds that are easier to get offensive rebounds. But still, I'm, I'm bothered by 17 offensive rebounds for Livingstone, and, and I hope that's something that Duke can really work on and, uh, and, and become the dominant rebounding team that I think we can with, with our experience inside with Jefferson and Plumlee um, and, and then the, the really talented youngsters in, in Ingram and Jeter. Uh, so, so, you know, how much can you take away from this game? Not that much, you know, we'll, we'll learn more as Duke starts to face real competition. Um, obviously good to get the easy win. And, and I know the freshman must've loved, loved, loved playing against this overmatched opponent and really getting to do a lot. Thornton had a big game last time. This game, it's it's Ingram, Kennard, and, and Jeter who had the big games. More power to them. It, it's, it's great stuff, and it, it makes us all excited and ready for the real season to start very soon. You mentioned Luke Kennard and how many times he shot it tonight. Uh, I pulled up the, the GoDuke.com quotes from the game, and Coach K was asked about Luke Kennard's three-point shots. He said, Coach K said of Luke Kennard, he should have had more. I thought he passed up about three. If they're there, he can shoot it. We always have let shooters shoot. So, I mean, you know, you'll say that we don't want anybody taking 11 threes in a game. I think that those sound like words from Coach K that say, if Luke Kennard wants to shoot, he's going to shoot. Um, and this team probably doesn't have nearly as much outside shooting uh, that, that we think of a Duke team having. I mean, you know, we've from guys like from J.J. Redick and, and then – and then after him, you have guys like John Shire and, and Nolan Smith and Kyle Singler uh, and, and all the way up uh, until last year with Quinn Cook. I don't think that in Duke's starting lineup this year, there's a guy who is who is anywhere close to any of those guys as a three-point shooter, but Kennard could be, and, and therefore maybe he's going to play more minutes than we expect uh, if he's going to be that good on offense. So I think that part of it's interesting. I'm also curious, you know, I, I think that Duke fans are, are optimistic about how good uh, Grayson Allen's going to be this year, and I I want to caution against sort of overhyping what he's going to be capable of doing. He had a great Final Four. He had an awesome national championship game where he provided a lot of the a lot of the key plays. Um, but heading into the season, I think we need to I think we need to realize that Grayson Allen spent most of last year on the bench, and even if he is you know he's talented enough to be a top player on a top team, uh, it's going to take him time I think to get adjusted to that role. And 
and uh, and we're going to see that we're going to see that come along. Um, but we should probably be patient with him uh, relative to you know expecting like uh, performances as good as like Quinn Cook was last year early in the season. I think. That, hey, hey, and, let, and, let me let me play let me play a quick game um, with right. the two of you. Let me ask this and and give me your answer. Who leads Duke in scoring this season, Sam? I think it's Grayson Allen. <laughs> Donald, what about you? Uh, I'm going to go Ingram just for the sake of not picking the same thing that Sam did. But I, I, it's going to be close between Allen and Ingram. But I, I, I do think Ingram leads in scoring, barely. Okay, so so I would also go Grayson Allen, but I would agree with you. It'd be Brandon Ingram. So he, he, so one more. I think it's Here's another be, fun I, one. I think it's going to be something, like I say that, I wouldn't be surprised if it's like Grayson Allen averages 14 points a game and Brandon Ingram averages 13 points a game and Luke Kennard averages like 11. So you, yeah. so you beat me to it. I was going to say, who's going to be the third leading scorer? So you think it'll be Kennard? I think it's going to be Kennard. I think that I think that based on what we've heard Coach K say about him, based on what we've seen in limited minutes in these exhibitions, I think that there's going to be a lot of trust on Kennard to score, especially when – Allen and Ingram aren't working. So, so Allen and Ingram are going to start, I would imagine. Um, it's going to be up to them to get the offense going early in the game. You know, I, I don't think we're going to, as much as we, as much as we liked Marshall Plumley in the first exhibition game, uh, really taking it to uh, Florida Southern. Um, I don't think we're going to rely on Marshall Plumley or Emil Jefferson to be scoring points. I think that Matt Jones is kind of like the, the three and D guy. So maybe he will hit some threes, but it's not going to be a, it's not going to be a regular thing. Uh, he's, Matt Jones is out there to, to to play defense. So I think that you'll see Ingram and Allen. And as soon as it seems like the offense is sputtering, you're going to see Kennard come in and he's going to do a lot of the scoring. I think that, that Derek Thornton is going to be charged with um, setting up those three guys. And so no matter what point we're at in the game, we're always going to see two of Allen, Kennard, and Ingram in the game because those are the three guys who are going to do the most scoring for Duke. And I, I think those guys are going to be double-digit scorers and everybody else is going to be under 10, probably. Um, yeah, but, so but I, I, I think you're, I think you're probably right, but you know, everyone else being under ten, I won't be even remotely surprised if Jefferson and Jones and Thornton and are maybe like, even Jeter are all like, are all like between eight and ten. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. like, yeah, that, yeah, and, and they will all have and and Marshall. I think Marshall's probably going to average around eight points a game, um, and yeah, they will all have games I, where they score more than twenty. I think that while I acknowledge that Ingram and, and Allen and Kennard are probably the, the three best offensive players, it's not such that, you know, they're going to be able to create everything on their own. I think all those guys are going to need help creating maybe, maybe Ingram a little bit less so because he's, because he's so big and he can, and he can move with the ball, you know, from the, like down into the paint from the perimeter. Uh, and Allen can do that a little bit too, but he's just not as big. Um, but I think that you're going to see the ball moving around a lot more and that, and that Duke's probably going to have to be more creative on offense than they've been in years past um, because they don't have necessarily that elite score. You know, last year, I mean, uh, early in the season, Okafor was so good at scoring against anybody in the post and and Quinn Cook could make every shot and Tyus Jones was there to like clean everything up. And I, we're not going to see any of that this year. I think that there's going to be a lot more variation game to game on like who's good and, and what strengths we're playing to. I think there will probably be a lot more like uh, game planning for individual, individual opponents. Uh, so like, I'm curious to see who the, who the leading score is against Kentucky in a couple of weeks. Cause obviously that game is going to be so big and you know, you can envision a scenario where any of those guys are going to be, are going to be the prime player against them. And I think that 
whatever happens in that Kentucky game, if Duke wins that Kentucky game, uh, the leading scorer from that game is going to all of a sudden become the star for Duke, whichever of those guys it is. And, and that'll probably persist at least into the ACC season because that's going to be such a high-profile game. Donald, did you want to add something? Yeah, I, I agree with everything, everything that you guys said. I, I think the one thing that I, I'm looking forward to is who has the hot hand on, on each, in, you know, any given night. Uh, I think you're right in that canard. But Donald, the hot hand um, is bogus. Don't we know that? The, the hot hand is bogus, but I, I feel like on any given night, like you said, anybody can go for 20. And and I think, you know, one thing I do think, Kennard is going to keep himself in the game by being uh, our quote-unquote three-point specialist. I don't want to really call him a specialist, but if he, if he's going to shoot the three ball, uh, you know, fairly well, that's going to keep him in, in, the, in the offensive flow. Um, but I, I feel like anybody can go off for 20 on any given night. And I think as a result, our scoring is going to be balanced over the course of the season. Uh, I, I don't think, you know, that I don't think there's going to be a lot of drop off from, uh, from the three guys that you mentioned, Kennard, uh, Ingram and Allen. If those guys are in double digits. And like you said, an, a bunch of these guys are going to be in the eight to 10 uh, points per game range. That means that on any given night, somebody's going to be that X factor that's going to come off the bench and score 10 points, grab 10 boards, um, or, or, or do something that is going to keep them in that rotation. Um, you know, as we all know, coach K likes to, sh- you know, start with a, a bigger rotation. And as we get towards ACC season, he'll shrink it to, you know, his preferred, you know, seven or eight guys, most likely. Uh, but I don't know who those seven, eight guys are at this point, because any, you know, there's, there's a lot of guys who at the start of the season, could really assert themselves on the offensive end and show that, hey, on any given, you know, coach, if you give me the ball, I'll get, I'll get you 10 points or I'll get you 20 points. Um, but that could be anybody. And, and I think that's kind of be uh, the thing I look forward to the most and kind of the most exciting part is you don't know what you're going to get. But I do agree that whoever is uh, the leading scorer against Kentucky, that's when the national uh, media will descend on that person as – the quote-unquote star of, of the group, um, especially if we win, because beating Kentucky is is something that would get you national news. If you're gonna if you're gonna score 25 and beat Kentucky, that's you're you're the man. So uh, I, I think that's gonna be interesting to watch. All right. So look at it on the flip side, um, which guy out of out of the whole group of scholarship players do you think is ends up getting ousted from the rotation when when it gets shrunk in you know later you know in a, in a couple months. Um, cause I think there are arguments for a number of those guys to not end up in the mm-hmm. rotation, but it's, it, but I don't know, maybe Jason, what do you think? I think there are seven sure things. Um, Ingram, Jefferson, Jones, Plumley, Allen, Kennard, and Thornton are sure yeah. things. I, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's easy so far. Thornton, you could say might get squeezed. But I think that we just, you know, we're going to need his ball handling. We're going to need a, a true point guard. So if there's seven sure things, the eighth guy is Chase Jeter. Now, I, I love Chase. Chase Jeter had a great game tonight. Um, I think that kid's going to be a really, really good big man for Duke um, at some point down the road. And he's already pretty darn good. And I think they're on most teams in the country, he'd be a freshman star. If someone's going to get squeezed, I think it's going to be Chase Jeter. But it could be Derek Thornton. And, and Sean Obi. I mean, you're... You're tossing well, Sean Obi with that's a given. That's the, Sean Obi, Antonio Vrankovic, 
Justin Robbins, <laughs> Obi's not going to play. Obi's just not going to play that much. I mean, look, we can, we see it from the exhibitions. I mean, Obi played only 10 minutes in a game where uh, Emil Jefferson got hurt and only played five minutes. I mean, if, if Emil Jefferson is only playing five minutes and Sean Obi can only find room for 10 minutes, I, that's already a given. Yeah. To, to me, no, we don't need to... We don't need to discuss those guys. We know they're yeah. not going to be factors. I think that I, I think you're right. I mean, it is it is down to Jeter and and Obi uh, not being in the rotation. Probably uh, that's not to say though that next year when Jefferson and Plumley are gone, that those guys won't jump in and be major contributors. I think that oh, I'm talking I'm talking about this season. I'm absolutely yeah, no, I know, no, I know, I, I, I know, that, and that's how I, I that's how I brought up the question. Um, but you know, I think that people get people freak out about you know if someone's not playing and they're going to transfer. Uh, or, or leave the program for whatever reason. Um, I see those guys both being contributors next year. Uh, and, and like you said, I don't know. I don't know how much how many minutes they're going to be for Chase Jeter. Now that being said, if if Marshall or uh, if Emil Jefferson is actually hurt, uh, as because he, I guess he rolled his ankle in the game tonight. If he's actually hurt, then Chase Jeter's going to get minutes because we need we need guys to take up spots in the paint. Uh, Donald, do you think you agree with Jason's analysis there? Yeah, I, I think the one person. I think looking at the rotation, you know, take into account that, you know, you're looking at a stat line from tonight and Matt Jones obviously didn't play. So we have to throw him in there too. Uh, I think I, I can see a scenario where Thornton is the first one to squeeze out. And I think that's because of uh, if we're going to have Allen, Kennard, Jones, Ingram, all fighting for, you know, three uh, backcourt spots, uh, that's, that's a recipe for Thornton not getting as many minutes as people would think. Uh, you know, I think up front, if you're talking about uh, Jeter, uh, Jefferson, Plumley, and Obi, then Obi is the first one squeezed out, and Jeter maybe after that. But I, I think if you're look, if you're if you're saying, hey, pick your you know seven, who's getting squeezed out? I think Thornton is the one most likely to be squeezed out, only because uh, if we see an emergence from Allen and especially Kennard, uh, that will make it harder for Thornton to see playing time on the floor, especially with Matt Jones's defensive skills. And that really so Donald, is on. To be clear, that, oh yeah. Donald, to be clear, you're saying that if Duke's playing seven guys, you think Thornton maybe squeeze up, but Jeter maybe in. I'm saying Jeter. Uh, I'm saying Jeter maybe in, depending on if Jefferson is hurt. And I'm saying if Jefferson, if all things are the same, everybody's healthy. And I think Jeter's also squeezed out. Okay. I, I, I think that the the thing with Thornton is gonna be whether those those three scorer guys that Ingram, Allen and uh and Kennard, if any of those guys can handle the ball reasonably well and we heard uh I think we've seen some that, that Ingram kinda likes having the ball in his hands, which is a little weird for a guy who's he's shaped like Luol Deng. Um He's taller than Deng. He's taller than Dang, but it's similar body type and, and, and moves around the court, I think, similarly, at least from what we remember Dang in college, right? Would you say that that's mm-hmm. maybe a fair comparison? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think, I, I, think, I think that's probably the, the best comp for him. Um, if any of those guys is able to handle the ball for extended periods of time, I, I agree with Donald that, that you may actually see Thornton get squeezed out, which would be, which would be interesting given you know, what an effort he made to come to Duke uh, as a you – know, as a rising senior in high school, I guess, uh, and skip his senior year and, and, and come straight to college. But that, well, but you know, what? even, even if he does get squeezed a bit and, and I'll say to your point, um, if Ingram, Allen, Kennard and Jones are on the floor, you know, if 
some combination of those four guys are on the floor together, three of them. Um, I don't know that you need one great ball handler because the three of them together can probably handle whatever we need to handle. If Thornton gets squeezed out, he's still better off having come to Duke, having spent this year in the oh, program yeah. with Coach K as opposed mm-hmm. to being in high school, playing against competition that most times – you can't even begin to match up with him. It will yeah. make him much I'm, better next year. So I'm not. I'm. I, yeah. I'm. I'm not debating that. I, I think that's that's absolutely true. And he's obviously going to get a lot more attention in college than he would have in high school. The same way that when guys are ready to turn pro, they should turn pro because you're going to become a much better basketball player sitting on an NBA bench usually than you are playing college basketball. So that, that and and and, and Thornton may have it where where the where the game has not slowed down for him yet, and I think it may take a little bit more time uh, than people realize on that front and not in the scoring part he's obviously you know contributing on the scoring end but I think as far as the the decision making process that may take some time for him to to get up to the college speed as we all as we said before he he arrived at Duke late because he was finishing up his high school class over the summer he's two months yeah so he's He's two months yeah. behind the rest of the team, and and that's not a bad thing. You know, this we're, we're not knocking him for that because he was doing he was doing his job. He had a different job this summer than the rest of the team. But now that he's joined the team, it may take a little bit extra time for him to get work into the flow. And that's the only reason why I think that uh, you know if Kennard can emerge and 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 Allen and Ingram can both uh, handle the ball very well, then we may not need to see Thornton. And it could be one of those things where in the middle of the spring. Or in the, I'm sorry, in the middle of the ACC season, Coach K gives the ball to Thornton and says, "All right, kid, your turn." And it's one of these shock things that that helps spur, you know, spur a, a nice run like we did last year when Allen emerged. All right, I think we've uh, I think we've hit uh, enough on basketball. Um, we'll have more to say, I think, starting next week when there are actual games to be played. Uh, Jason, I know that you had a note that you wanted to throw in about um, about academic success. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so the NCA has released their graduation rates. It's uh, over like a you know a three or four year rolling scale, um, and I just wanted to point out um, at, at Duke we always take great pride in this, um, but we should we should never waver from mentioning it and being proud of it and noting it. Um, the uh, the Duke basketball team in the latest NCA graduation report um, scores one hundred percent. For those of you who can't do the math, that means that every single uh, basketball player who came through Duke. Um, either graduated or, or, or had satisfactory progress toward graduation. The NCAA said they were, they were on track. Um, that 100% that makes Duke um, one of five teams in the top 25 that, that had a 100% graduation rate. The others were Kansas, Kansas, Duke, Villanova, Notre Dame, and Butler. Um, uh, so uh, huge props to Duke for that in basketball. In football, Duke had a 94% rate, not as good as 100%. Um, of course, as a football team's a lot bigger, a lot larger, um, and that 94% rate still led the ACC. Uh, Duke was, uh, you know, by a fairly wide, wide margin, the best team in the ACC, as we always are in football graduation rate. Um, so much to be proud of there for, for Duke uh, and for the kids who I, I can't even imagine how hard it must be to play one of these, you know, revenue sports, football and basketball, with all the practice, all the travel, all the other stuff. And, and still, Duke has such impressive graduation rates. I want to pause and turn and go eight miles down the road to North Carolina, where um, the Carolina basketball team achieved a graduation rate of 80%. Um, that meant they were the only team in the top five, in the NCAA top five, um, 
you know, in the in the in the rankings, in the preseason rankings, to have less than a ninety percent rate. They were at eighty percent. Um, and and in football, it's even worse. Carolina's football graduation rate was sixty-two percent, um, which is bad. That's that's really not good. Um, and it is worth noting that what we are seeing now, the graduation reports we're getting now are the first couple classes of kids who did not have Debbie Crowder and the African-American Studies Department giving them A's and B's for doing nothing. The, the, we're starting to see the first of the Carolina athletes who didn't have the crutch of not going to class, not writing papers, and still getting A's and B's. So now Carolina's at 62%. That's the lowest rate Carolina has had at graduation since the NCAA started tracking graduation back in 1998. So we're now at the point where Carolina is no longer cheating, and lo and behold, their football graduation rates are plummeting. They were they were at they were over eighty percent at the height of the cheating scandal in the early and mid two thousands. I I'm I'm gonna be very interested in seeing how it goes over the next couple of years for Carolina. Um, I won't be surprised if it continues to decline, if it continues to get worse and worse, because um, uh, they they were running a fraudulent system. They were admitting athletes under the fraudulent system. Everyone was using it to to give these kids grades. And then when it suddenly stopped or slowed down, I don't believe it stopped. I believe that Carolina found other ways to to cheat. Um, but they couldn't cheat quite as blatantly and openly as they had been. Um, and once that happened, you're now seeing the impact as the graduation rates are going down. This is yet another reason North Carolina should be ashamed and embarrassed over what they did. Um, uh, 62% in football, 80% in basketball, 80% may sound good, but again, that's the lowest of almost any team in the top 10, um, in basketball. Most of the, most of the good teams in basketball graduate 90 to hundred percent of their athletes, Carolina, 80% because they don't care about educating kids over there. They only care about winning games and they don't even win that much. Screw you. I hate them. Jason, how do you really feel about Carolina? So mad. I don't think, so I, mad. I, don't, I don't think, I don't think you're mad enough. I, can, I can't tell. You, need to convince you know, I've said it before, but the reason I'm so mad is that I respected them for so many years and, and I, I admired what I thought was the Carolina way. Um, and I admired the, 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 their, their success on the field and in the classroom. And it was all a lie. And, and, and you know, the, the person who feels the most anger, the most scorn is the one who, who trusted you the most. And I, I was, I was the rare Duke fan that, that admired Carolina. And that's why I'm more angry than the rest of you. I'm done. Donald, did you have anything to add on that? Uh, thank you, Jason, for your for your regular um, uh, tirade on the UNC program. <laughs> Donald, did you have, did, Donald, did you have anything to add? No, I, I just you know I just want to commend you know all our student athletes again. Like we, 100 percent is 100 percent. Like you get that, you take that gold sticker and you put that on your refrigerator at home, uh, and you could do that with a 94 percent too. That's still an A. Um, and I think that's, that's just a testament to everything, the methods that we're instilling in these players. And, and you know, if you guys remember, we, we interviewed Cirque yesterday. And, and for those of you who regularly listen to the podcast, we usually have about a you know, 20 to 30-minute conversation with people we're interviewing. And with Cirque, it was less than 10 minutes because he had to go to class. So, that I mean, he still honored his responsibilities and his obligations. And he didn't have to come talk to us. He could have said, hey, guys, I really got to get to class. But the fact that he was able to even give us 10 minutes and, and we were, we were not going to make sure we were going to make sure he wasn't late for class. Um, but we still got an interview out of him. So I, I think that that's the, the qualities that coach Cutcliffe and, and coach K are instilling in our players to, 
always go to class and, and, and assert yourself in, in academic side as well as on the athletics. Um, and, and you got it made. You can, you can still have a great program and doing that. And, and UNC is faltering in that, in that avenue. And, and, you know, now I hope, I, let's just ban them already. Can we just like NCAA, can we really just like, <laughs> just come on, man. We've been waiting for like three years. Can we just do this now? Can we just it's do this coming. already? It's, the, the, cloud, the cloud continues to hang over them. And as we've said many times, uh, it's just going to continue to hang until, uh, until the NCAA decides that, that they've had enough or, you know, the UFC wants to give up, you know, stalling or, or whatever, whatever tactics they're using. So it, it's going to come eventually. And they are they're, It seems like they're suffering through it now. Um, so we'll see. I, I, I think you guys covered the academic stuff pretty well. I, I don't have anything to add. I'm obviously very proud of the, of the student athletes who it appears are, are achieving all the things they're supposed to be achieving. They're doing well. Uh, they're doing well in their sports and it seems like they're doing well in school. So, so hats off to them. Um, they, they're, they're making us proud as alumni, which is, I, which is obviously the most important thing. You know I mean? That's who, really who they're playing for that are the dorks on the internet who also went to do. Um, so, so good for them. And uh, so now it's time to uh, wrap up the show. I think we've, we've done plenty for this week. Um, I'll throw it to Jason first. Jason, do you have any parting shots or anything to, to say goodbye with? Yeah, uh, I, I, there was something great that just came out in the past couple of days. Uh, Duke University announced the commencement speaker for um, 2016 for the graduation um, coming up. And um, they had to search far and wide to find just the right person for it. Many times, you know, sometimes you hear about uh, captains of industry, uh, military leaders, politicians who give these speeches. Uh, sometimes you get celebrities. Um, Duke went out there and the person they decided to get was Coach K. Um, they have asked uh, Mike Krzyzewski to be the graduation speaker. I think it is a excellent, fine, fine choice. Obviously, uh, he is so much more than a basketball coach. Um, he's an incredibly inspiring person. Uh, the stuff he's done for USA Basketball um, is is oh so important to our national pride and 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 to the country. Uh, you know, succeeding internationally in sports. Um, and this is a <laughs> this is a man who probably more so than anything is known for motivating. Um, I, I think, you know, I don't think there are many of us who say that Coach K is the best X and O guy out there. He's damn good at it, but he's not, maybe not the best. Um, uh, the thing I think he may be the best at is getting people to buy into what he's saying, motivating them and getting the most out of them. And, and that applies to how he recruits and it applies to how the teams play. And to hear him deliver, you know, an hour long or however long it's going to be speech, um, uh, for the Duke graduation is going to be a real treat. Um, I haven't been to graduation since the late 1980s <laughs> when when it was my turn, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorely tempted to come up and hear Coach K speak. I think it's probably just going to be uh, absolutely incredible, amazing. Uh, Donald, you got a parting shot? Yeah, I was just going to mention um, that next week, uh, it, the date keeps changing, but I believe as of right now, it would be on Tuesday the 10th. Um, we are expected to find out where uh, Harry Giles will be, will be going to school next year. Uh, hopefully it, it, he will be deciding uh, to come to Duke, uh, but I believe it's, uh, he has a, a nice list of, uh, of uh, candidates uh, in front of him, including uh, Wake Forest as well. So I, I think that's uh, probably uh, hopefully something that will help us uh, stew on and, and, and have something to talk about before the season kicks off in high gear uh, next Friday. All right. The competition's uh, Kentucky. The competition's Kentucky. Kentucky. It's not Wake Forest. It's yeah, Kentucky. No, I'll, I'll, it's Wake Forest. Well, no, no, I, I mean, don't kid yourselves. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I actually had two items to throw in at the end here. Um, the first is basketball related and is Coach K related, which was that we found out recently that um, after Coach K steps down as the USA basketball coach at the end of the Olympics, um, Greg Popovich is going to be taking over for him, obviously the coach of the San Antonio Spurs. Um, I think that a lot of folks on the forum and a lot of folks, you know, basketball fans across the country have been speculating for a while about who's going to be the next coach. And I think that Popovich always comes up as, as a, as a great potential option. And it's awesome that USA basketball picked him, that Jerry Colangelo picked him. Um, coach K obviously had a hand in that. He's been one of the most successful coaches in the NBA who, you know, there's nothing like there's nothing like there's no, he doesn't have any problems. There's no issues with his, with his team. We call it his program. Uh, the, the, the Spurs organization, they've obviously been a first-class organization for all the time that he's been there. He's been there for, since the, since the late nineties uh, with Tim Duncan and, and, and Duke father, David Robinson back in the day. Um, so I think that's a really good choice. I think that USA basketball is going to continue to thrive under uh, Greg Popovich and the coach K will hopefully remain involved with them. It's obviously been a great, um, it's been a great thing for coach K's career and for the Duke program, honestly, to have him involved in that organization. And my second parting thing um, with, with, if we're talking about parting, uh, I should mention um, that Virginia longtime Virginia tech uh, football coach, Frank Beamer announced that he's going to be retiring at the end of the season. Um, we obviously, you know, aren't the biggest football school. We haven't necessarily been paying attention to his career the whole time, but I think a lot of folks know how special Frank Beamer has been for Virginia tech. Um, he's, he led them to heights that I don't think that they ever envisioned they were going to get to. And basically for the whole time they've been in the ACC, that's been one of the scariest programs, you know, next to Georgia tech, the, the Georgia tech and Virginia tech have been the two best teams regularly in the coastal division this year. You know, obviously Virginia tech has been slipping recently. I think some folks just think that Frank Beamer is just getting old and maybe he's losing his time, but good on him to, uh, to recognize it and to retire. I think that they're going to do all kinds of nice things for him. He's had a wonderful career at Virginia Tech, and and he deserves all the accolades that are going to get poured on him uh, as the as the season goes on. Uh, I, I thought saw that there was a a big push to have College Game Day at Virginia Tech for his last home game, which would be really really neat. Um, so hats off to Frank Beamer for a great career, and uh, glad that we got to beat you uh, in our last opportunity. So uh, if that's it, did you guys want to pile onto there, or can we wrap things up and and uh, send it on to next week? Are we good? I think just real quickly, it's going to be interesting to see the college football coaching carousel uh, once the season's over. There are a lot of it's going to be totally huge programs. Yeah, that are, yeah, it's going to be a lot of huge programs that have openings. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that how that builds out. Sure. So I'll I'll tell you, um, there's a lot of talk that Mark Rick may be done at Georgia. Um, he's been there for 15 years. The program feels like it's a little stagnating. This year's been a disaster considering what they thought their expectations were. There's a lot of talk that Mark Rick may be done at Georgia. That would be – And if that's I – mean, there, there are folks who think that's a top-five program in terms yeah. of job, a top-five job. And you're, for, and, you're not, and you're forgetting Texas. Texas is out there, and, and that, that situation may come to a head, especially now that, you know, of course, my Miami contacts are saying that Charlie Strong is one of the main – candidates to uh, replace Al Golden at Miami. So I, I think that is, uh, this carousel is going to be, as Sam said, wild. I, I don't know if there's a better word to describe it than wild. It's going to be incredible how, how that comes, comes about in the next few weeks. And, and I don't know if any of the, if any of the Duke assistants have, have made themselves prominent enough to be up for any of these head coaching jobs. Um, you know, I like Kurt Roper didn't leave for a head coaching job. He left for another offensive coordinator job. 
But uh, but Jim Knowles has certainly done a great job with the Duke defense the last couple of years. So we'll see. Uh, as you guys said, it's going to be very interesting. All right, I think I think we're done. We've we've been on here for plenty of time. Uh, this is like one of the longest podcasts we've done. <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we should know. It's been all us talking too. Oh my god! Here. No one's <laughs> well, listening at this point. We can say anything we want right now because no one is still listening. It's true. Um, well, so I will say that, that starting next week is going to be regular season basketball. So we'll get back into a, a more regular rhythm, hopefully, um, with the show like we were last year during the season. Uh, so we'll be previewing all the games and recapping all the games kind of the, the way we were doing last year. I think we were on a good good rotation. I should remind everybody, if you're still listening, which you probably aren't, um, to feel free to come give us feedback either on iTunes or uh, at our favorite place, the forums at Duke Basketball Report, forums.dukebasketballreport.com. You can uh, read some of the things that we say. You can read some of the colorful things that lots of other folks in the community say. Uh, we post a thread every week, every time that we have a new episode of the podcast so that you can um, comment on it. Uh, so feel free to come do that. Join us. Uh, join in on the discussion. That's that's why we're here is to talk about Duke. And uh, thank you again. Thank you to Jason and Donald for joining. Um, for those guys, I'm Sam Klein. And uh, this is the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke Band, take us home. Thank you.